I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. We've got a triple feature edition of the program today. Three guests, one episode. Later on in the program, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Zunis, a returning guest, a good friend of the show, who will be speaking with us about the new Amnesty International report dealing with Israel, its treatment of the Palestinians, and the question of apartheid. Additionally, we'll be speaking with business insider journalist Mia Jankovics about anti-vaxxers like Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and the, shall we say, lucrative nature of their enterprise. But first, award-winning journalist Brandon R. Reynolds is going to be speaking with us about his rather interesting piece in who what why that's who what why.org entitled havana syndrome and tiktok ticks many forms of mass hysteria in this conversation we'll be discussing the geopolitical implications of the claim that havana syndrome is caused by directed energy weapons and the ways in which mass psychogenic events or illnesses can be used for saber rattling all that and more in my conversation with brandon r reynolds of who what why but first a word from one of our sponsors namely the transmedia storyteller joseph matheny the pioneer of alternate reality games has a new audio drama out called zen that's xen the zen of the other and let me tell you it is quite the mind mender but don't take my word for it i think you'll be able to tell that from the promo words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis zen The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur. 
if he can survive it. Back to zero. Which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, award-winning journalist Brandon R. Reynolds, whose work has paired in The Atlantic, Wired, Los Angeles Magazine, KCRW, and Who, What, Why, uh, a website that is a great friend of this show, and also the publisher, the carrier of the article we're going to be talking about that you wrote, Brandon, entitled Havana Syndrome and TikTok Ticks many forms of mass hysteria. But before we get into that, how are you doing today, Bren? Well, I'm doing great, JG. Thank you for having me on. I'm always excited to blather on about people acting weird in large groups. <laughs> so I have to be honest, this is probably the second show I've done dealing with Havana syndrome. A lot of people were mad at my first show. I had uh, Dr. Robert Bartholomew on, who has written, I think, the best book on Havana syndrome, where he basically says this is a mass psychogenic illness. So I'm in the, I think this is a mass psychogenic illness, or what more crudely people call a mass hysteria camp. Uh, but I did not know about this other thing now called TikTok ticks. And I don't know where you want to start. Do you want to start with the Havana syndrome or the TikTok ticks? <laughs> we can do the TikTok thing. I mean, I think it helps to put for those who think it's crazy that a bunch of people in a group can have these symptoms that affect them in this profound way, you go, how can that be? How It's got to be an energy weapon at a distance. Um, I think it helps to put it in the context of all of the other examples of people in groups who have acted in really bizarre ways. And so you see these uh, other cases of that and the one that, that sort of put two and two together for me, or at least for the sake of the article that I wrote was that there was this uh, eruption on TikTok of young girls who were developing these tics and individually they were being taken to doctors. They would, you know, make weird noises. There was a lot of um, uh, Tourette's style uh, tics. And, you know, individually people were like, well, is there some kind of psychological thing? Is there something physiological that's going on? Uh, and then after a little bit of research, they found um, that these girls were all going to the same TikTok um, uh, channels. And there's there were a couple of women on these channels or girls who had tics. And so these girls who were watching this were manifesting some of these same tics in sort of a copycat way, including one British girl who said the word beans as her tic. And so when other girls were starting to say beans or have some of the same head movements or whatever, people started to say, wait a minute, I think this is something that's being spread virally through the medium of TikTok. So then for listeners that don't know, what do we mean when we say uh, a mass psychogenic illness? Or uh, in the article, you refer to this TikTok ticks thing as a, a mass psychogenic event. 
Yeah, there's a lot of different terms for it over the years. I mean, mass hysteria is kind of the oldest one and the one I think we think of when we think of, again, people acting crazy in a group. Um, and then, you know, science and medicine likes to revise the title. So a mass psychogenic event just means, um, you know, it can be a single event that affects a lot of people and that has a psychological component to it rather than something that's external. So I think the important distinction here is you say, well, how do all these people manifest these things? And they seem something is wrong with them, right? And I think that's the important thing. It's like something is happening to them and it can have a physiological manifestation. Like the symptoms they're experiencing are very real. Right, right. So if you experience vertigo or ringing in your ear or whatever, it's not like all these people are making this up. They could very well be experiencing it, but that doesn't mean that that can't have come internally. And it also doesn't mean that it couldn't be a kind of placebo effect spread from other people by, you know, the stress of working in a kind of um, fraught government job, you know. And then, and so too, for, you know, to go back to TikTok, um, you know, if you have young girls, uh, or just teenagers in general, right? It's, it's extremely stressful. Social media has been shown in study after study to increase the stress levels of people. Um, there's a big report on Instagram and how that was creating um, eating disorders and stuff in young girls because of the advertising and the stuff they were choosing. So that too, you know, we, we go, well, we can understand how girls could become depressed and develop eating disorders from social media, but somehow like it's crazy that they would develop tics, you know, so I think all that stuff kind of connected. But yeah, the idea that something externally is causing it, but the actual, um, the actual source of the discomfort of the, the symptoms are generated psychologically. And do we know anything else about what researchers have been saying about this, this whole phenomenon of the TikTok tics? I mean, I think in the article, if I recall correctly, uh, no one is is saying that there's anything more uh, nefariously planned at work. No, no. I think, I mean, as far as I read, and I haven't really read much on it lately, it's one of those things that kind of vanished from the news a little bit. But yeah, as far as I could tell, uh, they were satisfied with that because it was so strange. You had these girls who were otherwise behaving normally, and then all of a sudden they developed these tics. And they say we're seeing these identical ticks on other people in TikTok, and and so I think I think that's kind of the thing. I mean, it's as nefarious as you know social media's algorithms that suggest things that you know might perpetuate or or uh, make worse a um, you know a psychological disorder. So then let's take that to Havana syndrome because there's been generally a, a very different reaction to that. I think that. You know, in my experience, when I tell people that I'm very skeptical of Havana syndrome and also uh, associated sort of phenomena, uh, there's a thing that's known online as gang stalking. I've told people that I'm very skeptical of claims about uh, gang stalking and targeted individuals. And I say that as someone who has spoken to people that believe they're TIs or that they're being gang stalked. I have nothing against them. I feel a lot of empathy for them, but I don't really believe that, you know, uh, it's it's nefarious Russian agents um, or, or the CIA doing these things. And I was wondering, what led you to go down the Havana syndrome rabbit hole? And maybe you hold a different view on it than, than I do. I don't know. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, 
I'm certainly not an expert in these things. But what led me to it was that I had been interested in um, the dancing plague in Strasbourg of 1518, where dozens to hundreds of people started dancing kind of spontaneously one hot summer day uh, in Strasbourg. And, you know, depending on, there were a bunch of accounts of this, and some said that people danced so much that they died, certainly that they passed out from um, heat stroke or dehydration. And the magistrates of the town, like, had to figure out how to deal with this. They didn't know if it was God punishing people. They didn't know if it was some kind of devil who was doing it. So one of the solutions was that they would, like, round all these people up and put them into guild halls and then bring musicians in and be like, well, if they're dancing, let's just give them musicians and let's see if they'll just dance it out. Like the the solution was have them dance more. They didn't know much about hydration then. So um, so that was their solution. And that's something I'd been fascinated with for years and years and years. And the long and short of it is like, well, that's where my family's from. You don't know much else uh, as an American kid about uh, Strasbourg or Alsace. And so when I heard that story, I became obsessed with it in a, in a funny way. And so that sort of has colored everything I've heard since then that sounds like it could be mass psychogenic illness. And so when the Havana thing came up, um, you know, if you remember, I think in the early days, there really was this credulity to it's a it's an energy weapon and it's definitely affecting these people. And it must be Russians because it's in Cuba and on and on. And then, you know, after a while, you would see these some of these stories kind of break down. You would see doctors come up and say, I think there's these look like they could be just natural stress responses and so on and so forth. Um, and then like this bloom of cases worldwide um, from other people in embassies or working in intelligence or, or State Department positions. And all of it just sort of seemed like, well, is there is there any there there? I mean, there was from the beginning scientists who were saying, I, I don't know how an energy weapon would work that wouldn't make a bunch of noise. And, you know, then they kind of revise that to be like, well, it could be portable. Susan Collins, Republican senator of Maine, she says maybe they're listening devices and somehow they're causing these things. I mean, you know, is there a possibility there's technology? I do not rule that out at all. Sure, there may be. But, I don't know. But there there may be. But the, the issue I have with the whole narrative, and I guess this is what concerns me when, you know, I, I, I mentioned to someone uh, recently that uh, a while back, Chris Carter, the X-Files creator, uh, who oddly enough is actually usually very skeptical of conspiracy claims, uh, he wrote a piece in the New York Times where very, very briefly for you know some reason, he decided to bring up Havana syndrome. He thinks the government is covering up Havana syndrome here in the US. Our, our US government is covering up uh, that we're being attacked. Uh, our diplomats are being attacked uh, by these foreign agents. And my concern is, okay, that's a pretty big claim. And this could have big ramifications um, with regards to international relations and foreign policy, especially for a small country like Cuba that we've often, I mean, we, we have sanctions against them and, and blockades. So, you know, I, I think we should have our cards in order when it comes to, uh, is this phenomena caused by direct energy weapons of, of these foreign governments? But go on, I didn't mean to interrupt, I'm sorry. No, I think that's exactly right. You know, is there a possibility that it is? Sure. I mean, maybe, maybe there's not. But it's also important to keep in mind, as with TikTok or Havana syndrome or whatever, I mean, or um, Strasbourg, it's like people can act weird in ways 
that will blow your mind. And the idea that you think, well, no one would act this way. It's like, no, we have a lot of proof throughout history, recent history, and even further back of people being manipulated essentially by their society, by the stress of their society, by whatever, to behave in these really strange ways that, you know, once upon a time they said, well, it's demonic possession. And now they say, it must be the Russians. And you're exactly right. I think going forward with this idea that it must be the Russians and it must be this concerted act of war, I think is extremely dangerous, particularly now that Russia's at Ukraine's border. And, you know, just coincidentally today, like an hour ago, there have been stories coming out about this new panel that was is saying it turns out it could be energy weapons. We're back on that, even though a few I weeks think this ago, this is an intelligence panel uh, mm-hmm. saying this. And yet a few weeks ago, we had the CIA saying, now we've kind of ruled out this idea that Havana syndrome is caused by, uh, you know, foreign agents. But yeah. 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 So that's very confusing anyway. It's like, well, what's the intelligence agency saying? Are they arguing with themselves? You know, again, it just it looks like it's all really confusing. And it's certainly there's nothing in anything I've read that would suggest or justify taking, you know, military action against Cuba or Russia or China or any of those things. Like none of that adds up. And I think that's what you have to sort of look at unless you have real evidence of a smoking gun. And what would that look like? Well, we'd have to figure that out. Um, I mean, I'm very comfortable with the idea that it's all psychogenic. And I, you know, again, I could be wrong, but um, I think it's not crazy to go forth assuming that that's it and continue to search for these other answers. But, but, you know, the thing thing I usually go on, I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say they had thousands of people, something like a thousand different cases, and they whittled that down. And now there's like, well, there's like 12 that that are suspect. Well, that's pretty close to zero. Once you get down to it, if you knocked away, you know, 900 plus of them anyway. Yeah, it's interesting because I've often had people say to me, well, you know, we have to take this really seriously. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Right. But they'll say we have to take this seriously because, you know, we're being attacked. What if we are being attacked by Russia or Cuba with these microwave weapons? And I'm like, well, yeah, but we should take it just as seriously if we're not being attacked by directed energy weapons, because, you know, if we're not being attacked uh, and, you know, this Havana syndrome thing is a mass hysteria, then pushing it out there the way we're pushing it could possibly have big ramifications when it comes to our relationships with other countries. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, I, I when you think about saber rattling, it comes in many forms. And, you know, if you have these esteemed panels of experts come forth and say, I don't know, this looks like it could be a foreign power. You know, I mean, what what goal does that have other than to, you know, make people feel nervous about it or to project a message to other countries like, you know, we may be up to something, we may be looking at um, leaning on you in some way, you know, it's 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 just a lot. It's a it's a lot of, you know, I think to bring it back to TikTok, like, you know, is is there a possibility that that's something more nefarious than, you know, than a mass psychogenic event? I mean, yeah, maybe like what? But then it's like, what is China like doing something because they co-own TikTok? No, I mean, it seems it's easy to accept that for, you know, teenage girls. But for some reason, like when you have, um, you know, intelligence agents or people who work at State Department, like we we assume that that can't be the case. But the idea of of misdiagnosing that 
and saying it's something external, like you say, is, I mean, it could potentially be way more harmful than just, you know, uh, some girl being given anxiety pills and it turns out like, no, nah, she's really fine. She's just watching the wrong stuff, you know. Now, you also mentioned that a lot of this goes back to, you know, 2017, then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson calling Havana syndrome health attacks. And uh, you get into this idea that aggression can be its own form of social contagion and that Tillerson as a state actor saw other state actors uh, when a problem sort of arose. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think if you work within a certain milieu, you go, what is it? And again, it's hard to, I think it comes back to this fundamental idea that we all believe that the reality that we've created ourselves, created for ourselves is reality, is capital R reality. And so it's it makes for a very uncomfortable idea to assume like, well, the people that are in your employ as State Department officials are completely misreading the situation and in fact have generated this illness for themselves. So, you know, that's kind of the thing that underlies it. And I think for for Rex or um, the representative from Texas who wanted to pass a, a state Havana, what is it, the Havana, Havana Syndrome Attacks Response Act um, that Michael McCall uh, out of Texas proposed. You know, you're a political actor, you've kind of got your goal in mind, which is like, well, if I work for the Department of State, if I'm the head of the Department of State, that's where I exist. So I think I must be looking for um, state actors to do that because I'm not a medical professional. And by the way, neither is Susan Collins, as far as I know. Um, you know, she's not a scientist. I don't know if she's developing listening devices. So for her, you know, she too is like, well, there must be a political answer to this. Why? Because I'm a politician. That's what I see, you know. Yeah, I like how you put it in the article at Who, What, Why. Uh, you say, if it's true that Havana syndrome is psychogenic, we can draw a pretty extraordinary conclusion. It would represent a clear-cut case of self-induced saber-rattling. The stresses of international tension produce a debilitating condition in sufferers. So like we saw with Havana syndrome, if it was stress-related from the work the diplomats are doing, you know, that's what starts it. And then the response uh, to which is to further ratchet up international tensions. And it just snowballs from there. I mean, in a way, I almost feel like uh, we could be enter entering an age of either intentional or unintentional weaponization of mass panic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it would be kind of bananas if you think about it. Like, you know, somewhere down the road, we're at war with Russia. Why? Well, it turns out like we, we just misread it. And it was a bunch of people who were nervous about us going to war with Russia. Russia. So it becomes this like self-fulfilling mechanism, which, you know, I, is that the dumbest thing that has ever happened in international policy, international relations? I don't know. But it would be it'd be nuts if, if that is if that is the thing that came out of it. And tying that back to TikTok, what you sort of bring up at the end of the article is really interesting because okay, well, let's believe that Havana syndrome is done by these nefarious foreign agents. Then why can't we believe the same about TikTok? It is uh, owned or co-owned by China. So this could lead to, you know, even more of this sort of uh, self-induced saber rattling uh, sort of sickness, uh, you know, weaponized uh, psychogenic illness or events. Yeah, I mean, you know, the run the hypothetical is, uh, you know, there are forces in the Chinese Communist Party 
Um, they really want to destabilize the economy of teenage American girls. So they design, they force uh, uh, TikTok to design algorithms so that girls who have uh, tics do videos, and those are presented to girls who are likely to have tics, something like this, right? So you, they, you know, they do the psychological warfare on people. Like, you know, that, I mean, that, that would seem like a lot. I mean, is it possible? Again, sure. Why not? But no one's going to that extreme yet, I guess, was, you know, is the point of comparing those two. It's like, well, if it's with the State Department, we're quick to go. It must be an energy weapon. But when it's teenage girls, even if China is there, we're not like, well, that must be some kind of nefarious cause, too, to destabilize the psychology of these people. So, you know, I think once you sort of compare some of these events, you, you, you start to see some of the logic, I think, break down. Or you can see the ease, to put it more charitably, you can see the ease with which we could slip into um, a mode of misinterpreting motivations or, you know, or misdiagnosing causes for stuff. So out of curiosity, I mean, that's a really, you have a really creative approach to looking at this because you're looking at potential bigger picture possibilities when it comes to these things like Havana syndrome. I mean, we, we are in a very paranoid time, I would say. I mean, I think America has always had, uh, as uh, the great sociologist Richard Hofstadter put it, uh, the, the paranoid style in its politics. Uh, but we're, we're at a point where I think on, you know, social media, uh, everyone believes in some brand of uh, conspiracy, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Russia is behind everything or or uh, the Democratic Party and the CCP, if you're Alex Jones. Uh, it seems like everyone sort of has their own sort of uh, pet grand conspiracy narrative. Uh, and I'm not saying conspiracies don't happen. I, I think they do. I just am not sure that the, the grand conspiracies uh, happen, at least not in the way people claim they do, uh, that, that are on social media a lot. And one of the terms you see a lot online is, uh, oh, it's an op or it's a psyop, you know, and a lot of people are starting to develop this idea that, you know, there's psyops everywhere. What led you to sort of thinking about the ways in which this sort of trend of seeing uh, conspiracies when it comes to uh, phenomena like the TikTok ticks or Havana syndrome what led you to consider the the possible geopolitical implications of that? I think because it watching the the political response from again politicians like McCall or Collins, where it's like I don't know they don't know anything that's going on. They have no idea. They're not you know they're not physicists and they're not doctors. So they're hearing what they are told. They've got the same information that I've got, I'm pretty sure, and that most of us have got, because so much of that was public from the jump. And they're saying, well, I guess the only thing for us to do is to, you know, initiate this potential military response or more trade embargoes or whatever it is. Um, and it just seemed like the repercussions, like that it was, it was, it was resonating larger and larger so quickly, even though the argument from the beginning was like, this could all be this could all be psychosomatic. This could all be psychosomatic, everybody. Um, but that still didn't stop the sort of political machinery from clanking along in this way that seems, you know, kind of uh, typical for foreign policy. Like, well, we see a threat. Is the threat real? I don't know. But it looks like a thing we think of as a threat. So let's mobilize accordingly. You know, and again, in this time where everybody's paranoid um, and hot on the heels of, uh, you know, the the interest, let's say, in um, Trump's involvement with Russia, 
um, from the election on and how some of that's blown up and how it's been misrepresented by the media in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think it's important to find those opportunities to acknowledge what do we really know and what don't we know. And if we don't know all of this stuff for sure, is that um, a reason that maybe we should tamp down our kind of saber rattling response? And so that I think that was, again, that, to come back to it, it just seemed like the most naturally satirical thing that that you could have people who are really freaked out working for a government job and the symptoms of that get picked up and, you know, in the echo chamber of politics, go up and go up and go up and say, well, the only solution to this is to make things a hell of a lot more stressful for everybody. Have you ever seen uh, the South Park episode about the 9-11 truthers? Mm -mm. So there, there's an episode where... South Park made fun of 9-11 truthers. And at the end of the episode, you find out the 9-11 truthers were actually an op by the government to make people think that their government was so competent that they could actually pull off a terrorist attack. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the conspiracy in the South Park episode was the uh, the conspiracy itself was a conspiracy. The conspiracy, the people who making the conspiracies uh, were the actual conspiracy. It was all being, you know, uh, done from above you know they're trickling out these ideas um do you think there's a, a way in which there's a potential for mass hysteria to be intentionally weapon weaponized almost like as a form of like hybrid warfare yeah yeah i mean i think we have a hard time grasping like how it works like we can't even agree when we see it now um i think one of the things about it is from what I've read, it tends to, you know, it tends to affect people who are more emotionally volatile. So, you know, younger people, particularly teenagers, who are already like being under attack by uh, their hormones. Uh, so stuff, you know, and then you have this like in this media apparatus of social media, like that we don't even have a grasp of the power of because it's just minutes old, you know, so, you know, we're, ha we're like the first generation of kids are going through this. That's the Kind of the test market for it um and we're seeing all these weird effects right TikTok thing and uh, i mentioned in that story there was a um like a teen soap opera drama kind of a thing in uh portugal and in this show which i think was like a 90210 or something like this anyway there was a, a condition that happened to some of the characters in the show and then actual human kids in portugal started coming down with this in this high school so you know you see these kind of transitions um, and I think that is hard to control, right? I think it would be hard to plan that in that way. I mean, I think there's a really exciting, like, conspiracy theory about, you know, trying to come up with um, TV shows that encourage that. I also kind of think it's happening anyway, like like we were talking about, the the anxiety that goes on from the way social media is designed to ramp up high emotions and to polarize people. I mean, that's all kind of a version of it. You know, if you think back, if you can remember back even, you know, five or six or 10 years ago, you know, you can think about like, well, remember the Republicans were like this and the Democrats were like that. But, you know, there was not the viciousness that exists now. And, you know, I think that people haven't necessarily changed that much. They've just been the perception of things is that things have changed a whole lot. And again, like the idea that conspiracies happen. Yeah, like a lot of the corporations are out there continuing to screw us in the same way. Uh, you know, QAnon is hot on 
child slavery, but then like the Nestle Corporation went to the Supreme Court for using child slaves to work in their chocolate farms overseas. And that didn't really make much of a, you know, much of a stir. Like people didn't freak out and stop buying Nestle chocolate. So, you know, I think it's like the idea of a conspiracy that's interesting must be one that's secret and stuff that's just out in public. People feel like, no, that's not that interesting. Um, yeah, I was so, going to say too, real quick, I, I think we can see past examples of how conspiracy theories can often be used uh, to push like certain agendas. That's what I mean by like, sometimes I wonder if the, the real conspiracy is the proliferation of the conspiracy. So for instance, the one I always use is, um, you know, there, there were certain people um, that were like ex-CIA and, and uh, you know, involved with the, the sort of Republican establishment that were at one point pushing this idea uh, promoted by uh, this reporter, Yana Davis, that Saddam Hussein was somehow behind the Oklahoma City bombing. And I, I think that's patently nonsense. But in the lead up to, you know, the Iraq war, there were people resurrecting that conspiracy theory. In a way, you can almost use some of these conspiracy theories to um, push for an agenda. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, that was just a conspiracy theory that the mainstream media wholeheartedly adopted and sent us, you know, onward into war. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, there's, I think you're bringing up an interesting point, which is, you know, we're talking about these extreme examples of possible mass psychogenic illness, right? Where the physiological reactions are extremely strong, they're extremely debilitating, and you kind of can't deny them. And then on the other uh, end of the spectrum is the kind of general uh, behavior manipulation that goes on with media you know, from entertainment to music to obviously the news, all this stuff's happening in a kind of subtle way. Um, you know, and so the idea is everyone assumes like, well, I, the way I work is that I take in all of the, these, you know, data points from all the things that I consume and I, an autonomous agent, process this stuff and make the best possible decision for me that's unaffected by anything else. It's uncontaminated by anything outside of this stuff, you know, rather than like, no, you, we all live inside of a environment that is very much, uh, you know, that's affecting us at all times. And we can never operate in a way that's outside of that. So like, you know, you can think you're say a state department person in Havana, not to pick on them because I think they really have been through hell and whatever's going on with them seems like it's extremely stressful and debilitating in some cases. But, you know, you have a stressful job. Even if you're going around day to day thinking, I'm not stressed right now in this moment, you might just always be aware of the fact that you're in a country that your own government is telling you is hostile and very foreign. And maybe that, you know, doesn't jive with your impression of the Cubans being really nice people to you. And so you think that feels like a conspiracy. Why are they all being so nice to me? I've been told they're, you know, and even if you're like consciously aware of like, that's crazy to think that that they're out to get me somewhere down below, it might be working away at you. And, you know, and then if somebody says, oh my God, I feel like I've got this energy weapon attack, then you think all of this stuff bubbles up, you know? And I feel like there's just these cascades that are always about to tip at any given time. And maybe so that's why the idea of this leading to an international incident feels just like a scale up on that, on that kind of cascade effect. Yeah, and I should just clarify for anyone that is thinking I'm saying this, I'm not saying, uh, Oh, the, 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 the story of Havana syndrome was created by, you know, 
the U.S. intelligence in order to make us hate the Cubans. I, I don't think that either. I, I guess what I was trying to get at was I, I think there's ways in which, uh, you know, these can all these events can be used to uh, saber rattle, as you were saying. And in closing, uh, it, it's funny, you mentioned uh, that incident, uh, the, the dancing incident, right, in the 1500s, the dancing plague. Uh, people should know, we've had mass hysterias uh, before, uh, you know, the, the current time we're in. Uh, and we've also had uh, these mass hysterias, you know, after uh, the dancing plague from the 1500s. So, you know, the example I always give to people is the uh, the, the phantom anesthetist phenomena, uh, the, the mad gasser of Mattoon, you know, incidents where uh, supposedly these... Um, anesthetic prowlers came in and, and were gassing uh, people in small towns. This was, I think, in the 1940s, the Mattoon incident um, in Mattoon, Illinois. Uh, so we've had these incidents all throughout history. It's not like there's one incident in the 1500s and then there's Savannah Syndrome now. We've had uh, a lot of these type of incidents. And what, what's interesting to me is how mass psychogenic illness can change over time. So the the Mad Gasser of Mattoon incident happened, I think, with the advent of, you know, radio and, and television uh, sort of taking off and, you know, maybe things spread through that, right? Well, the question I have is, you know, how can mass psychogenic illness maybe spread differently now or in ways that they didn't before, in ways that it didn't before, now that we have, you know, global social media, uh, you know, websites like TikTok, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And when you were saying that, I was thinking about what are some of the other things that you could almost describe to this or a flavor of this? And the one thing I was thinking of, because I like UFO stuff, is the phenomenon of the particular UFO abduction of the greys that started in like the 80s, where people were being experimented on, probed and whatever, which coincided with the release of Ridley Strieber's book, Communion. And so there was a lot of media around this idea. Um, and a bunch of people, not surprisingly, reported that they were being kidnapped by aliens and probed and so on. And then that sort of all went away, it, you know, around the same time that it stopped being something that was covered in the media, that books were stopped not being made about it as much. People just moved on to other things. But you know, is it like, well, the aliens stopped being interested? They had done all the probing they needed to do. Or was that something that is, you know, one of the many um, superstitions and things that we have in our minds at all the time, and that there's a media, uh, a species of media or a story? I guess it all comes down to story, right? Like a very powerful story comes along and explains away some aspect of your life. And you fall into this habit of going like, when I fall asleep at night, I have these weird dreams and I wake up and I feel sore in some way. Okay, well, that must be an alien thing. I'm one of these people. It also binds you to a community. Anyway, that made I me was think gonna, of that. I was going to say it's interesting you mentioned that because so the X-Files, I think it's the original run of the X-Files. I think it's last season was 2001 or 2002. And I think one of the stated reasons that they sort of let it go after that point was they felt that that kind of conspiracy theory wasn't good in the aftermath of 9-11. And it is interesting. I think we moved on from uh, conspiracy theories about aliens abducting people to, you know, a, a lot of conspiracies about, oh, the, 
you know, the, the Muslims are coming to get us. I mean, especially for uh, elements of the right in society. So it seems like we move on to different uh, forms of conspiracy theory with, uh, you know, the passage of time, different eras, different concerns arising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, yeah, I feel like there's always a sort of interface between high and low, right? Like why, why did so much of our culture, like why was all of a sudden punk music so oriented toward, um, you know, oriented against the Bush administration and the war in Iraq? Well, obviously because that war was going on. But were those guys going to be, those punk guys, going to be talking about politically that kind of stuff? No, it was like caused by some higher force. So there's always, I think, this kind of interchange of like culture responds to society and society responds to that and politics is, you know, there's just these sort of high levels of control and then low levels of influence that pop up. And then you have social media, um, which I think is, you know, the biggest thing that will potentially affect our behavior and clearly has has proven to do so. And as far as like what the next form of mass psychogenic illness is, is it going to look like TikTok ticks? Yeah, possibly. could be any number of things. I mean, again, maybe it's happening now, like when you get all bent out of shape because uh, the Wordle bot answered your wordle for the next day because you posted your answer and like blew it up for you and maybe people lose their minds over that in some uh concerted way but uh, yeah i think you know i think what you would look for is you know for it to be this kind of classic case of whatever classic case of mass psychogenic illness is is something that happens to a person because of for example the quote unquote energy weapon of the internet um making everyone's behavior kind of align in some way that is detrimental to their health, detrimental to the health of other people, that seems aberrant in some way. You know, so you see people like acting like insane freaks online. We kind of just go, well, that's part of what online life is. But, you know, like, are you going to see something happen on Twitter tomorrow and like a bunch of people take to the streets and dance and call it the devil? Like, no, it won't look like that. It'll look like something else. Although it would be pretty cool if it was, you know, people dancing in the streets. You could always use more of that. Last thing here. I, I agree with that, too. We, we need a lot more uh, dancing in the streets. Uh, everybody get their groove on. But yeah, exactly. It, uh, the last thing I wanted to touch upon was, you know, I didn't even think of this before we got on air, but I, I like to think a lot about how uh, different phenomena or different pop culture, um, all of these things sort of coalesce with the time they're they're happening in or made in. Um and I, I think we live in a time where there's a lot of fear of surveillance. I think we, I think we've been living in that since, you know, especially the the uh, Edward Snowden revelations. And you can see it all over the place. I mean, you see it in a lot of different TV shows. You see it in things like the example I like to use is, uh, you know, this creepy pasta, the, the the legend of Slenderman. You know, this online folklore Great around example. Slenderman. Yeah, Great because example. I mean, I, you know, people have laughed at me, but I'm like, it doesn't surprise me that. Uh, a character like Slenderman arises in a time where there's, you know, fear of faceless entities, much like the Slenderman, uh, but faceless entities like the NSA uh, that are possibly watching us. And how does Slenderman sort of get to us? He travels through uh, the, the world of the digital, our phones, our computers and whatnot. And it, it's really fascinating to me because I think, you know, you may see a little bit of that with the scare over things like Havana Syndrome and uh, TikTok ticks, this idea that someone is always watching, someone is always trying to control us. Uh, do you think that in an age of, you know, really digital surveillance uh, and, and agencies devoted to surveillance, that maybe that has 
brought us to this point where, you know, there's a lot of fear of, oh, we're always being watched. Yeah. I think, I think yes and no, right? Yes, in the sense that we know a lot about not only government agencies surveilling us, but also corporations, Google, Facebook, Apple to a certain degree. Well, even, even you know, that the things like the, the Pegasus spyware uh, yeah. that the NSO yeah. group had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that stuff, which just allows a level of access that never existed before, in part because we never lived so much of our lives online before. But, you know, take that aside from you know, the idea of um, real world surveillance, you know, CCTVs in in Great Britain, for example, and then, you know, things that the police want to do here uh, that increase their ability, you know, red camera lights are a thing that make people insane for obvious reasons. Um, But yeah, I think that surveillance does increase um, our kind of general sense of of being watched. And the reason I say no, it's not new is because I think that's just always been with us, right? Like with the Strasbourg dancing plague, one of the things that precipitated that was because these people were under intense stress from the fact that the church, this was the Holy Roman Empire, the church had incredible power. And it was at that time extraordinarily corrupt. So they were taking a lot of their money, 10% of their anything anybody produced, and then they would sell it back to them at a markup. This was during a period of droughts. So you already had people who were essentially living, they were dealing with poverty, they were dealing with starvation, and they were also seeing their priests, their religious leaders who were clearly living in sin. Like they would take concubines, they would live these lavish lives, very rich. Um, And they knew that the thing that increased the stress for them and the thing that a lot of them reported being, you know, something that precipitated this anxiety was that they felt like they were being watched, like God was watching them. God was angry at them for being unworthy and for therefore having such crappy religious leaders. God was mad at the religious leaders. So there's always somebody who was paying attention to what they were doing. And that kind of pressure of not being able to live up to some kind of um, ideal life, I think, just would wear away at the psychology of a person. And, you know, you'd have these these like eruptions of, I can't take it anymore and I'm not going to do it anymore. So, you you know, in that case, like dancing was considered sinful. So that was their thing. It was like they were just acting out because that was kind of all they had. But the surveillance by this supposedly benevolent God who didn't seem to be showing up for them and in fact seemed like maybe was working against them, I think that was, you know, just an earlier version of what we now see in a very literal way through, again, corporations, government, intelligence services, and so on. So I, I've kept you a bit longer than expected. Uh, just to close out here, you have a really interesting piece on Who, What, Why, entitled The Great Los Angeles Train, train Robbery is an Exercise in Misdirection. That's from uh, January 24th. What What is this uh, great train robbery, and, and why is it a misdirection? Yeah, so... Uh, the media loves a good 1960s era Western turned into a news story. So I think that's what happened here in LA, in the neighborhood of LA called Lincoln Heights, a, um, a photojournalist here in LA, which is where I'm based, had taken a bunch of pictures of um, these the tracks in Lincoln Heights. And there were all these discarded, torn open packages. Clearly, there had been a lot of theft of these train cars that would come through here. The trains would park in this spot, and then these thieves would come in, open the doors on the train cars, and then they would ransack it. Had been doing so for, you know, according to Union Pacific, at least a year and probably longer. 
And so the media fell all over this story. And there was just a series of identical stories about like the reporters wading through the crap and identifying, you know, here's this, here's this photo that's never going to get to the person. Here's the package for a robotic arm or something. I mean, just, you know, this catalog of like all the stuff that didn't get to where it was going to go. Um, and the story was interesting to me because all of the versions of the story um, operated in a certain way, which was that from the beginning, they let Union Pacific, which owned the trains, shape the narrative by saying, this is happening because we have a progressive prosecutor here, or progressive DA here in Los Angeles, who's not prosecuting these thefts. Therefore, we have a soft on crime approach. And so criminals feel like they can just do whatever they want. And a lot of media kind of ran with that at first, and also ran with, you know, the stats that were reported by Union Pacific, see how much theft has been going up, and so on. Um, And, you know, even just a little bit of digging shows that, well, the Union Pacific has its own police force. And in fact, they had done a lot of layoffs in the last year, even as they were hitting record profits. 2021 was their most profitable year ever. And they cut down their own security force and then turn around and they blame it on LAPD. They blame it on the DA here. So, you know, again, you have this this interesting story to me about all of the media gets excited about this cool imagery and like, where does it go? And doesn't have enough novel information at first to like really be critical of, in this case, the main source of information, which is Union Pacific. Um, And so they sort of repeat these talking points. Uh, And then as it shapes up, you realize, well, there are certainly ways to solve this problem that don't have anything to do with like increased prosecutions, which again, kind of like with Havana syndrome, there's no real proof that they're not prosecuting a bunch of people. I mean, they're not prosecuting, but there's also not proof that like these people that are being arrested are able to be charged because it's like somebody walking along the tracks and maybe they're carrying a surfboard. Well, if you didn't see him steal the surfboard, uh, it's hard to prosecute. At least that's the district attorney's argument. So, you know, it's one of these ideas of like the story starts in this kind of weird place and starts sort of far from reality or from what I think is important to talk about. And then you see uh, outlets like LA Taco here in LA, great outlet. They go, well, no, wait a minute. Um, what about uh, the train company and the fact that they did all these layoffs of their security? Does that have anything to do with it? So you kind of have to weed through, like, again, the mainstream media covering this in sort of this general and semi-identical way and then sort of dig a little deeper to figure out what's really going on. Um, and that story continues because they haven't, like, solved the problem yet. But, you know, one of the questions is, uh, is this really something that's specific to this neighborhood? Lincoln Heights is kind of a lower income neighborhood. So, like, they get blamed for it. Like, oh, it's all these poor people, all these homeless people in Lincoln Heights. It's like, well, is it is it that or is that just a great spot to rob a train because it's out of the public eye? Because you also are now seeing this happen, I think, in Chicago. You're just like, oh, that thing is happening there, too. So, you know, it's an interesting story. It's sort of got all of the the riffs of a nice American, you know, old school crime thing that everybody loves to get behind. It seems simple and it turns out, no, it's like, it's like about corporate bottom line stuff. Well, a lot of food for thought there. And I think sort of tying it all together when it comes to media criticism, I think we're going to have to have you on the show more often if you're ever available again. I, I hope this is the first of many conversations and I want to thank you again 
Brandon R. Reynolds for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, manipulating the minds of America's youth uh, at Sunny Borderland on Twitter. Uh, I also have a podcast with my friend and colleague, Stephen Jackson. It's about media analysis, news stuff, comedy, and that's called Journos. That's on you know Spotify and Apple and I think Stitcher. Those are the places. Uh, but thanks for having me on, JG. Let's do this again. This is fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brandon Reynolds. Please be sure to keep up with his work at whowhat.why.org. Next up, we have Business Insider, or now as it's known, just Insider, journalist Mia Jankovics, who has been covering the movements and machinations of some heavy hitter anti-vaxxers, specifically Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, a figure popular with Infowars, among others. I want to get straight to that interview, but first, a word from one of our sponsors, this time musician Rick Berlin, author of the new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. I wrote The Big Balloon, A Love Story a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that uh, I've been trying to get on, and finally we're, we're doing this, uh, Mia Jankovic, uh, a reporter for Business Insider, now just Insider, I think people should know that. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. So Mia, you've been doing some reporting in the past year on uh, some very interesting characters, uh, people who have sort of made a business of uh, anti-vax uh, sort of sentiments and pushing those sentiments uh, in society. In particular, you focused on a character by the name of Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And uh, we'll talk about her, but uh, first, I guess, how did you come to be involved in uh, covering this story of anti-vaxxers? And I guess what the Center for Countering Digital Hate is called the Disinformation Dozen. Mm, I mean, um, I think it's become an issue that's much more central to anybody's consciousness in the last couple of years, just purely because of the pandemic. Um, everyone's hungry to uh, to ensure that they are really taking the right decisions for their own bodies and for their own health in, in this time. So, you know, they're always going to be naturally curious people who want to know if, if the vaccines will help them or not. Um, and vaccine hesitancy has been a thing. 
So there, you know, there has been this kind of massive moment for kind of long-term anti-vaxxers to come in and if, you know, and spread misinformation about, about the, the, the so-called harms of a vaccine. Um, I got particularly interested, and I think it's probably the moment when a great deal of people um, noticed her, which was in June last year when Dr. Tenpenny was invited to testify by the GOP um, at the Ohio State House about the security of the vaccines. She spoke for quite a long time, but the moment that really got people's attention was when she claimed that the vaccines could potentially make people magnetic and connected to 5G. Not, not to interrupt you, but what does that mm. mean to make people magnetic? Literally that like keys and, and stuff will stick to you. And <laughs> it was a big moment. I think that there was a big kind of... Um, there was a lot of unverified videos going around like Spain and India, I think, on YouTube showing kind of people apparently with like spoons all over them. Um, yes, which, you know, it's it's quite clear that the vaccine does not do this to you. So she actually testified on behalf of uh, a, a GOP hearing in Ohio. She was invited by um, Representative Jennifer Gross, who didn't respond to my request for comment. Um, I imagine there will have been a great deal of other viewpoints on display that day. But, um, you know, as an Ohio local, as um, Dr. Tenpenny is, I expect she was invited as a kind to kind of like scoop in all the kind of potential views that are available at that time. Now, I just want to note from my part that, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have heard Tenpenny's name in the past year because of all of this. And, uh, you know, COVID, but she's been around. I, I'm familiar with her name. She's been around for uh, a number of years, even before COVID. And a, mm. a lot of this anti-vax sentiment isn't new. I know you're in, in the UK. And I mean, uh, there's Andrew Wakefield was right. a big name within the anti-vax world. So a lot of this stuff isn't completely new, but it sort of gained steam in the age of COVID. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these people have been going for a long time and have in some ways been kind of I don't want to say in the background, but I'm um, certainly less prominent than they are currently. So, yeah, Andrew Wakefield, I mean, he was majorly discredited. And, you know, people like me in Britain really thought that he was kind of a goner. Um, you know, he was stripped of his license um, many years ago over a, um, a very, very uh, inaccurate report about vaccines causing autism. Um, and he sort of found a way to come roaring back, I think, indeed, as one of the disinform disinformation dozen, I believe. Um, Dr. Tenpenny, I mean, she's been she's been saying this stuff for a long time. She wrote a few years ago a book called Saying No to Vaccines and also a book called Foul, spelt with a W, about um, about the bird flu pandemic or uh, was it a pandemic or was it a um, an epidemic? I can't remember, but um, which also kind of made I can't remember exactly what it says, but I think it, it does relate things back to the so-called evils of vaccines. And she's been controversial for some time. I mean, in um, in 2015, she uh, she had a plan to visit Australia, and I think that became very for some kind of conference, and that became very um, controversial. Um, but yeah, no, this this isn't this isn't anything new for people in her world. So you actually got in contact with uh, Tenpenny, and uh, I, I believe spoke with her for the pieces you've written. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that interaction and some of the uh, sort of questions you posed to her? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that that was a really interesting conversation. I got very lucky in that she picked up the phone and um, um, and she gave me some time. Um, 
And I mean, gosh, where do you start? I basically put it to her, you know, that 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 there are so many statements she has been making that are um, considered by any expert who has any clout in the field at all to, to be really, really wrong. Um, and she sort of said that from her point of view that, that there are doctors and there are medics and there are experts who agree with her instead. Um, and those she mentioned people like uh, Peter McCullough, who is another one of these kind of figures who's in the sort of anti-vax movement. She mentioned Dr. Ryan Cole, who's um, an Idaho clinician um, who has worked a lot with COVID testing, who was appointed to a medical board, but has, um, let me see, what did he call it? He called it needle rape. Um, so, you know, she, she pointed to some, you know, qualified medics. The problem is, is that their views still are deep, you know, strongly outside of the, the scientific mainstream. When I asked her kind of, when I pointed this out to her, she kind of said, well, isn't, in fact, there's a quote in my article, I'll try and find it. Um, um, she kind of said, you know, isn't this what science is all about? You know, you, uh, you, I bring my expert, you bring your expert, and we kind of fight it out. That's not a direct quote. Um, and that, to me, was a really strange conception of how the scientific process actually, you know, how scientific scientific truth is actually determined. Um, and, yeah, and then after that, obviously, I still had lots of follow-up questions, so I sent her a very detailed request for comment over email, which she responded to some of those, but I think at that point she wasn't so willing. And, and her specialty is um, osteopathy. She has really no qualifications in epidemiology. Right. I mean, she um, she's an osteopathic physician. Um, she's had the same kind of initial training as an MD. Um, so I was told by, by another osteopathic, you know, it means that she will have had some very early immunology, um, immunology experience right at the start of her training. Um, but this is going back, you know, several decades. And um, given that there are there are MDs working directly in immunology, epidemiology, and with these things, um, the point here is it's the researchers, it's the scientists who are on another plane altogether when it comes to the knowledge of these vaccines. Um, you know, Dr. Tenpenny is not in a lab every day asking herself questions about scientific accuracy. Um, and yeah, again, she- I- she mainly Sorry. reads a lot of scientific papers, yeah. and I, I think she does read a lot of peer-reviewed ones, but not always. But that doesn't mean that she's getting everything right in her readings of these papers. Yeah, no, I mean, she talks a lot. She very often talks about the 40,000 hours she's put into researching this, and I don't dispute that. I mean, she appears to be a very hard worker, and um, a lot of the time, the stuff she shares is peer-reviewed papers. Um, but I asked um, what I did is she's written a, a book called um, 20 Mechanisms of Vaccine Injury. She followed that up with 20 more mechanisms of vaccine injury, um, which now uh, which I put to um, Professor Raymond Tellier at a Canadian university. I'm just going to find his credentials. He's a microbiologist and he has specialisms in coronaviruses, pandemics, and medical microbiology at uh, McGill University in Canada. Um, so I asked him to review this, um, this entire document. And, you know, he said, look, everything she said in this is, is basically wrong. 
you know, it, it might work with terms that are very sciencey and that get used and get talked about in these papers. But just she she just simply doesn't understand the matter and doesn't and doesn't um, doesn't represent the, the, the information very well at all. So he said she does not understand or she willfully misrepresents the articles she's reading reading and is incapable of appreciating them correctly. And he sent, he didn't just sort of say this off the cuff, you know, he also sent me a sort of really long email with, you know, describing sort of point by point why this doesn't work. And of course I sent this to her so that she'd have it. Um, but this didn't, doesn't seem to have had any effect. Now, she also, I think when we were mentioning the 5G stuff and the, uh, you know, this magnetism deal that she has. Um, she's very prone to, I think, a, a, a conspiratorial sort of worldview. And I, I think she has said things that are, um, you know, if I'm being charitable here, at least borderline uh, anti-Semitic or at least shared things of that nature. Could you talk a little to that? Right. I mean, it was the um, the Jewish Chronicle, I believe, that... Um... Did, in, did manage to find um, several um, telegram posts that do stray into this kind of anti-Semitic worldview, you know, talking in dark tones about uh, the global control, uh, global control mechanisms of George Soros and things like this. Um, she did point out in one post, um, or she said in one post, I would, shouldn't say point out, um, is that the, C, the, the CEOs of the major vaccine manufacturers are Jews, which got her into a little bit of hot water. Um, and she discussed taking that post down, but told me that she didn't. Um, more recently, she has hosted, um, um, I'm gonna be careful here, sorry, can we just pause, well not pause. Can I say what I'm gonna say and hope I get it right? Cause this is fairly new information that I haven't like parsed very much. So she recently uh, had a, had a hosted on her Clout Hub site um, a conversation with um, Patrick King, who is one of the major voices in the current Ottawa um, truckers protest. Um, now, say what you like about that protest. You know, they're among those protesters. I imagine that there are people with legitimate questions about medical freedoms and about whether you should have vaccine mandates. You know, that's a living debate. Um, but Patrick, you know, so there's many people she could have chosen to speak to on this matter. Um, but Patrick King is, is, a, is a really, really um, quite vocal figure who, um, according to um, the, the anti-hate organisation of, of Canada, is a kind of far right a racist, basically. Um, he, uh, he, no, I, uh, he has, according to them, expressed overtly racist and anti-Semitic statements. So, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a situation where there is room to talk about vaccine mandates in a, in a, in a, and debate them, you know, she's opted to speak to this guy um, rather than someone who perhaps takes a more mainstream perspective on um, racial equity. I was going to add to, I, I was just looking it up and I, I see that she has uh, posted about her live broadcast with this Patrick King fellow on her profile on uh I think it's called Getter. It's one of these social media uh, websites, I guess, that is supposed to be an alternative to, to Facebook that is sort of appealing to, uh, you know, people that are anti-vax uh, amongst a number of other things. Uh, what is her following like? Because I know she's also on uh, Telegram. I, I know she's not on 
Did she get booted from Twitter and Facebook? She was taken off Twitter. Um, as far as I know, she's off Facebook or at least, and she had several pages, um, several of which have been taken down since my reporting, in fact. Um, she's on Instagram, but she's not allowed to post live video, which was a place where she got a lot of her audience, I believe. Um, it's really hard to estimate her reach. I mean, she has a large reach on Telegram. Her views on her videos on Clout Hub regularly get about 5K views. Um, she still has her Instagram following, so she can point people over there. And then she's, you know, she's appearing on things like Infowars um, and at rallies. So she was most recently at um, the Reawaken America rally, um, where she made some other um, difficult to fact check claims about the vaccine. Um, so, you know, she, she, as far as I'm aware, also from her own telling, she flies around a lot um, and speaks in a lot of places. She's a busy person. So I believe her following is quite big. Now, the, the main issue I wanted to get into, and I'm, I'm glad we are sort of getting into this at the end here, is uh, th this is this has been lucrative, not only for Dr. Tenpenny, but also a lot of other figures. I mean, uh, you know, here we have uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has the Children's Defense Fund, which has seen a large increase in the number of dollars it has received since the pandemic. He's also sort of uh, within this anti-vax sphere. And, you know, uh, this is a really sort of lucrative, th there's a lucrative business with a lot of this anti-vax stuff. And I know a lot of the anti-vax people will say, well, big pharma is lucrative and we're, we're right. just telling the truth. But th there is a lot of money being made by people like Dr. Tenpenny and RFK Jr. Could you speak a little bit to uh, how Tenpenny has sort of monetized what she's doing? Yeah, I can speak to what um, what it appears that she's monetized. Um, I don't have a dollar figure for what she earns or what she has earned. Um, I have identified what appear to be her income streams through this work. Um, she obviously has a private practice um, as an osteopath. I believe she's still working on that, although she did speak about, about moving away from that at one point. Um, she may well be receiving speaker's fees for the different events she speaks at. I don't know. Um, she announced a while back she was being sponsored by um, my, the My Pillow guy. What's his Mike, name? Mike Lindell. <laughs> Mike Lindell. The, the guy um, who was uh, big in the, uh, uh, we're going to get a recount of the election. It was stolen from Trump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, she's sponsored by him. She was sponsored by him at one point. Um, she deals with a lot of uh, affiliate marketing deals. So you'll see in her email, there will always be, um, you know, by exactly what the MyPillow thing is, you know, she'll say, buy these wonderful MyPillow pillows um, with use the Dr. T, you know, Dr. T uh, discount code. Um, there's... Um, she, I don't know if she still does this, but she has been in the past involved in uh, vaccine injury cases where she's spoken as an expert in defense of, um, or in, in support of some of people claiming that they have been vaccine injured. Um, she sells these educational modules. I've taken one um, for about $79 each about, you know, teaching you about why the vaccine is terrible and uh, why masks are a, uh, form of social control and things like this um she holds webinars i think some of them have been like 600 dollars a head um and i think recently she did hold some events in support of her upcoming project which is a 501c3 nonprofit. now obviously this is a non-profit so don't know how whether how that how that supports her if it does at all 
but there are just there's a lot of ways and of course she sells supplements um you know constantly um they're always being advertised through her her mail shots so it's just an awful lot of ways that you can monetize this um and you know it, it it's it would be very interesting to see how well she does that I was going to say, I know you're being charitable saying it seems like she's monetizing it, but I, when you're selling these, she's selling educational courses that are, I, I think, uh, what, $79 a module. Uh, I think she's discounted them at times like $24.95, but she is uh, trying to, I, I mean, we legitimately know that she is selling, you know, educational suites about, you know, her views on COVID-19. Yes. I mean, um, I don't know how many, who, who else has bought one other than me. Um, but you know that you know one nice advantage anecdote from that is is having sort of seen one of the slides that she used to talk about the efficacy of masks. She did uh, quote a study for, by um, an Australian professor called uh, Professor Lydia Moravska. Lydia Professor uh, Lydia Moravska is an atmospherics researcher in Australia, and her research on how particles move through the air. Um, became really important early in the pandemic as, as we thought about, you know, respiratory transmission and masking and things like that. Now, Dr. Tenpenny cited in her course um, this study to, as part of a kind of an argument that, that masks are, she calls them uh, diapers, dirty diapers, that masks are, you know, wrong and you shouldn't use them. So I, I, took, this, I took this slide and I sent it to Professor Moravska. And she was like, this is this is the literally the opposite of what my research says. Um, and, you know, it's it's so strange to see that it goes back to our point before about, you, you know, how you can use and misuse peer reviewed papers. Um, when I took that back to Dr. Tenpenny, she just said that Professor Moravska had misinterpreted the implications of her own research. I was going to say, too, she does seem to have a tendency to use very. Uh... I don't know if the right word would be emotional language, but she, she sort of like will say, ha, I got the idiots. You know, I, I proved them to be idiots. And she, she's very, uh, she gets very fiery at times. She's a charismatic woman. You know, I've watched a lot of her Bible study chats, um, which is what, you know, she ha- used to have a thing called Happy Hour with Dr. T, um, where she would do a sort of Bible study meeting on Instagram, on Instagram Live, and talk to lots of people Um uh, ostensibly about the Bible, but it would always or nearly always veer into vaccine misinformation and some very, you know, very, I think, um, fringe, I believe, um, um, ideas about Christianity at the same time. And she would get really emotional with that, but I can see how appealing that is. You know, she has this very warm demeanor. Um, she appears like someone who's working very hard in the best interests of people. Um, and that's really appealing. It sounds like, it's interesting because we, we've talked about how this could be lucrative for her, but it sounds like she also very much believes in what she's doing. Yeah, um, I think she she really believes it. I can't, I, I sort of think, could could someone be this cynical? I think she really believes this stuff. I, I don't know for sure. So before we close out here, for me, a lot of these issues around vaccine misinformation, what worries me is that I think there are uh, real issues that we should be discussing with regards to uh, the vaccine rollout and whatnot. I think it's been uh, difficult for some countries, especially in the global South, uh, to get the vaccines as easily as they uh, should be getting them. You know, there's talk of this issue of uh, some people have called it vaccine apartheid. Now, I I think that the the issue I have with 
a lot of what these characters like Tenpenny are doing is that it, it takes it takes our eyes off some very real issues with regards to these vaccines. I was wondering if you could comment on that or if you've uh, spoken to anyone that could speak to that issue. I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's very similar to the, the sort of big pharma position. You know, the, the very root of, I, I believe, of Tenpenny's kind of um, vaccine skepticism comes from, you know, come, can, can, can still be linked back to a place where, where, we should naturally, as a news or you know, as the news media, as the public, as politicians, should be being very, very, um, be scrutinizing big pharma very carefully on how it operates. Um, and the same goes for the the vaccine, just you know, the world of vaccine distribution. You know, vaccines may work, you know, broadly they, they've they've done a great job, but if we are not being extremely critical about how it's um, how it gets distributed, you do end up with situations of enormous lack of equity. And it seems, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that you know leaving the door open for new variants to come through. And I was going to say too, I don't know if you can comment on this at all, really, but uh, I, I've ne- I haven't delved into this issue of, of uh, you know, you, you mentioned this vaccine injury thing. I'm assuming there may be, you know, some people that have been adversely affected by the vaccines. But to me, in, in some ways, uh, the way that uh, Tenpenny and others have either exaggerated or made claims that can't be fact-checked at all, it actually causes a, a lot of issues with dealing with the realities of the vaccine and and what side effects they may have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, vaccine injuries exist, you know, vaccine injured people um, are documented um, and they are entitled to compensation under certain, um, under certain laws. Um, And this is, this is not disputed. Um, In fact, one of the people that Dr. Tenpenny did um, represent in one of her cases was a genuinely vaccine injured person. Her testimony in that was considered scientifically illiterate, I believe. Um, But um, he, you know, someone else stepped in and, you know, and and sort of provided the knowledge and it was correct. You know, he had had a genuine vaccine injury. Um, I mean, if you if you have time, I can talk a little bit about the the about VAERS and the vaccine adverse event reporting system and how it's sort of misused by this um, by this crowd. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Sure thing. Um, basically, um, the CDC runs a thing called the vaccine adverse event reporting system, which essentially asks people if if you've had a vaccine and something bad happens to you soon after. You can you file a report with us right now. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to prove that these two events are connected. Um, all you have to do, all we want to know is, did something bad happen, you know, to your health soon after a vaccine? And my understanding of that is that um, rather than proving that a vaccine has at all has any causal relationship whatsoever to the to the the, the health issue that followed, it's my understanding is that it allows the government to have a or the CDC to have a sort of top down view on where hotspots might be emerging around a recent vaccine rollout where they can say, yeah, maybe we've got a problem batch here or actually maybe there is a problem with this particular vaccine situation, um, like a kind of canary in the coal mine situation. Um, and I mean, I don't have the, the current figures in front of me, um, but at the time I wrote my main piece about Dr. Tenpenny, there were um, 6,340 deaths reported in people who've had the shot, um, which sounds like a lot of people, but that's 0.019% of all recipients of the vaccine at that time. 
So not great, but also not a reason to stop the vaccine rollout. Now, one of the most common things I get people writing to me about after they've read this, if they are, if they are a supporter of people like Dr. Tenpenny, is saying, why don't you report the VAERS figures? Why don't you report the VAERS figures? Have you seen how many are dying? And it's a very, very emotive number because, you know, 6,000 odd people dead after a vaccine. We don't know because of the vaccine, but after a vaccine. It's a really emotive thing to read. So much so that Dr. Tenpenny, um, I believe still does have at the bottom of her regular mail shop, which I get almost daily, um, a kind of running ticker of that day's VAERS reported, you know, reported deaths. And then to take that further, that 6,000 figure has been reported, variously reported as much bigger elsewhere. Um, as many as 45,000 deaths is one claimed figure, which appears to come from um, a, a sort of rogue lawsuit filed by America's frontline doctors. I don't know where that lawsuit's at, so I won't call it a, a rogue lawsuit actually, but um, they claim to have used the VAERS data to come up with a different deaths figure. Um, but at the time that Dr. Tenpenny was telling me about 45,000 deaths reported on VAERS, that had not been through the court system. Um, but she used that figure anyway, um, as if it was true. That's interesting. You mentioned uh, America's frontline doctors. They've actually uh, come up on this show uh, a number of times because they, really? well, yeah, because they have uh, connections to uh, this uh, right-wing political organization called uh, the Council for National Policy. Um, so it's always interested me. A lot of these things aren't necessarily as um, grassroots as people think. Right, right. No, I think it's very hard to track because there is so much crossover, um, you know, between between a number of different um, delusions that are currently existing in our in our public discourse. Um, so, yeah, I can I can well imagine, you know, you, you have Dr. Tenpenny saying, I think sometime back in January that she believed that. Um, now, what was it specifically something uh, she she was talking, you know, saying another theory, which has since been disproved about the January 6th riot and about the election of President Biden. Um, so these, there's so much crossover in this space. So la last thing, I promise to let you go after this. I know we went a little bit over uh, and I, I appreciate your, your spending the time with me, but, you know, you mentioned that you've had responses uh, to your articles uh, from people that are supportive of uh, Dr. Tenpenny. And I, I too, when I've done episodes on COVID have had people uh, say to me, and not necessarily even in a completely impolite way, but you know, saying, well, what about this? Or what about this? Um, you should talk to this person. You know, There's another uh, perspective on this. And I, I get, I don't wanna like attack these people as, you know, it, it's not like, I think all these people that, that believe in Tenpenny are uh, bad people. Uh, I, I just happen to think that they're uh, being misinformed. And I was wondering, how do you approach people that have uh, maybe come at you for the articles you've done on this? Um, I, I mean, firstly, I try my best to respond to everybody. It's really hard because, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, five sentences of complaints in an email can, can kind of point to 50 different misconceptions all mixed in with each other. So it's very hard to respond to because it takes ages. But I really try because I think a lot of people write, write when they're angry and they don't expect 
they don't think there's a real person at the other end who really, really cares about reporting accurately and who really, really cares that they, as a reader, get the right information and that we're not motivated by, you know, by our own political biases and we're not motivated by, um, you know, ensuring they're all dead from the vaccine. Um, so I write back. Um, I usually just always point out that I'm working in good faith. Um, and then I just address very closely any points they have. When it comes to, um, you know, they'll often say, I've had people say things to me like, Dr. Tenpenny knows so much more about vaccines than you do. So how dare you sort of say that you know better? And I'm like, you know what, you're right. She does. She, she's a doctor. She probably knows more than I do. I'm not, never studied medicine in any capacity. So, you know, on that scale, she's probably more qualified than me. Um, but my job isn't to be the expert. And the job of the reporter is never to be the expert. The job of the reporter is to go and identify the best person who can possibly give you the truth at that moment, whether that's an original source or whether that's, uh, in this case, you know, a professor who is literally at the, the forefront of research in that field. Your job is to, in good faith, go and talk to them and pass their information through in a way that's really readable to the public um, and then say, yes, this stuff is rubbish. Um, and I try and get that across. Um, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally I get a nice response um, to, and you know, you can chop this if you like, but another woman wrote to me saying she'd seen her daughter magnetized and that I was lying and that the vaccine had magnetized her. So I said, right, um, you know, I would, you know, can you tell me a bit more about this? You know, did, were you in the room at the time? When was this, you know, when did you, um, see this did can you repeat it has it happened again and would your daughter be willing to meet with me and show me what's happening to her I said I can't promise you an article but I want to you know I will respond to your things in good faith um, and she didn't respond um, so that's another way so, so say okay show me tell, tell me what you're telling me I'm not ignoring your your allegations here and, and I think you know just on my end I, I think it's important because you know, I, I've had people that are maybe on that sort of Sherry Tenpenny side of things say, well, do you just support everything with Big Pharma and Pfizer? And, I, you know, I don't I don't think necessarily the two things are entirely related. I, I think there's a lot of things Pfizer has done in the past uh, that deserve a lot of criticism. And I get why people have a, a lack of trust in a lot of our institutions. But, right. you know, it doesn't mean we should trust uh you know, um, blindingly anyone who is a critic as well. Absolutely. Um, it's a confusing world out there. There is a great deal to um, interrogate at all times. Um, and simply, you know, defending certain key truths that the vaccines, for example, do not contain magnetic particles or 5G connectivity does not mean a defense of, um, you know, the, the way Big Pharma has in the past you know, exploited communities. Um, it simply means that we're pointing to this fact. You know, things, people can be bad actors without every single thing they do be bad. Well, Mia, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. If you could, uh, how can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing? Um, oh, well, they could, uh, they can follow me on Twitter where I'm extremely boring. Um, and that's just my name, which is M-I-A-J-A-N-K-O-W-I-C-Z um, at, at Twitter. Um, and yeah, just uh, stay in touch with Insider, um, insider.com or businessinsider.com. And thank you again, Mia Jankovitz, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mia Jankovic. Next up in our third and final segment of the show, we're going to be speaking with returning guest Dr. Stephen Zunas about the recent Amnesty International report making headlines in the past week about Israel, its treatment of the Palestinians, and the question of apartheid. Dr. Zunas will explain to us what the report has to say, as well as the media and political reaction to it. We've already seen a few congressmen dismissing the report as anti-Semitic, and Dr. Zunas has more than a thing or two to say about that. So without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Stephen Zunas. Welcome back to Parallax Use, Dr. Stephen Zunis, Professor of Politics and International Studies at the University of San Francisco. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. So, uh, Dr. Zunis, I'm very grateful that you were able to come on the show today. I needed someone on short notice uh, to tell my listeners a little bit about this Amnesty International report on Israel and the practice of apartheid against Palestinians, particularly in uh, the occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, could you tell my listeners, what are the basics of the report that they may not be getting if they're um, only listening to their uh, Congress people? Well, it's a detailed 280-page report, uh, which looks at the systematic policies by the Israeli government, particularly in the uh, occupied West Bank, but in uh, overall policies as well, where there is a systematic discrimination of uh, the Palestinian uh, population and, and everything from the uh, uh, freedom of movement uh, to, uh, uh, to, to property, to um, uh, political rights. I mean, just you, you go, down, go down the list and it, by, by virtually any definition, it does indeed constitute uh, uh, what uh, the international community, international law recognizes as apartheid. Uh, they did not call Israel an apartheid state, as some of the critics are, are claiming, nor did they in any way uh, question Israel's uh, right to exist, uh, nor were they singling out Israel. Obviously, if you're familiar with Amnesty International, they write about quite a few countries and are very critical of human rights abuses wherever they, they may be. Um, but um, it, you know, it, it, it's apparent that most of the critics haven't actually read it because, again, that it, this, this, this misrepresentation that we've seen from everywhere from the U.S. State Department to uh, uh, congressional leaders of both parties. I, I was going to say, Israel preemptively, I think, uh, denounced the report before it even came out. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, and, it, and it's, just, it's somewhat disturbing, you know, about the precedent this sets. What's disturbing is that... Uh, it is pretty clear that not being able to argue the uh, specifics of the report, and again, doesn't look like uh, these critics have actually uh, read it, they're just attacking the messenger. They are not putting up any kind of information except claims that, oh, Israel, Israel supports human rights, of course, there's equality, whatever. But again, it's, uh, anyone who's been there, who's been to the West Bank, as I have, anyone who's read reports by Israeli human rights groups, like Beth Salem, uh, Breaking the Silence, uh, and others, in fact, well over a dozen NGOs have come out in, in, uh, uh, in support of, of amnesty. 
But uh, similar conclusions have been brought by Human Rights Watch and others. Uh, it, it, in a sense, what appears to be happening is that because a, a human, uh, because Amnesty International has been criti critical, not just of Israel, uh, but of Egypt, of Saudi Arabia, of Bahrain, of Morocco, of other uh, governments that are, are backed by the United States, uh, the hope is that if you discredit um, uh, uh, Amnesty International around Israel, you can discredit them on any other report that is uh, runs contrary to the U.S. insistent that, that we send unconditional uh, military aid and security assistance to these regimes. I want to come back to that, but first, uh, you said the report doesn't say that Israel was an apartheid uh, state, so maybe you could explain for my listeners, what, what is the difference between saying uh, Israel is an apartheid state and saying Israel practices uh, you know, a, a form of apartheid? Well, usually when we think of apartheid state, we think of something, uh, a, a system quite as, as rigid as we had in South Africa uh, that uh, yeah, openly embraced uh, the term. They're, they're the ones who invented it, actually. Uh, it literally means apartheid. Uh, and uh, and that, you know, there is, you know, that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that as in the case in South Africa, you know, blacks were not allowed to have any positions uh, in, in government. They weren't allowed to vote. Um, you know, there, there was a you know, very, very, um, you know, you had to carry passbooks everywhere. Um, a situation, it's not that bad in Israel itself. It's, it, is pre, it is pretty close to that, actually, in, in, the, in the occupied West Bank. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, but the main, main point is that they do not actually use those terms in the, in the, in the study. So the fact that the Biden administration, congressional leaders are claiming they are, uh, again, as evidence, they didn't actually read it. Uh, similarly, uh, this this idea that uh, uh, that somehow it it it, uh, it questions Israel's right to exist, some uh, which it doesn't, um, in, in no um, in, in, in no ways, uh, no way whatsoever, um, doesn't. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's just really it's just very very bizarre. Frankly, I can't quite get why it is, uh, that that uh, people are saying these things, except as a very consciousness. Not to interrupt you, but it, it sounds like they're almost going off uh, maybe talking points that they got from uh, a think tank or, or some other uh, source that gave it, it It's possible, but you know, we, we've seen this before. I mean, when Amnesty International came out to, to uh, document uh, uh, war crimes, serious human rights violations by the Salvadoran junta uh, that the United States was, was helping, that the Reagan administration was trying to put forward as a, as a struggling democracy, um, there are similarly harsh languages, language uh, against them. But we, we've seen this many, many uh, times before when, when Amnesty has talked about human rights abuses by U.S. soldiers in Iraq, uh, when uh, you know, they have um, uh, uh, criticized Saudi Arabia and its terror bombing in, in, in Yemen. Uh, we frequently see these denials. We frequently uh, see these kinds of, of attacks. The difference is, is that this time, it seems to be quite a few Democrats are joining in, in this kind of disinformation campaign. And this is, uh, didn't seem to be a very smart politics, frankly, because uh, you know, Amnesty International has always had a very, very favorable perspective among American liberals who are the primary uh, voters and supporters of the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, we, we, most of us have, have been via to fundraising events you know, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, rock stars and, and, and Hollywood actors have done fundraisers, you know, for Amnesty. They won the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's one of these organizations that you, one would, that, that 
generally if it got criticism, it was from either the, the far right, you know, who, um, you know, obviously uh, uh, question any any challenge to uh, American allies or certain far left elements. I mean, those who are rationalizing for the Assad regime and in, in Syria, for example, you know, or or some of the excesses uh, by the uh, Venezuelan or Nicaraguan governments have said, oh, you know, Amnesty International is biased. They're lying. They're making th things up. But you know, to have kind of mainstream liberal Democrats going after uh, uh, amnesty like that, this is this is a new phenomenon, and it, and it demonstrates that um, the very very um, problematic a place we are in right now in terms of uh, a, a popular discourse that uh, even a group uh, that almost considered sacrosanct, like uh, like uh, uh, like amnesty, uh, can can be uh, uh, can can be lied about and and and, and slandered. Um, uh, you know, by by the the uh, uh, Democratic majority leader in the House, by the heads of both the House and Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, by dozens of other uh, Democratic members of Congress, and of course the the Biden administration itself. It's interesting too because you know I, I think the Biden administration and a number of Democrats have you know cited Amnesty International when Amnesty is attacking human rights abuses in countries that are considered. You know, unfriendly to us. Oh, they're very much so. I mean, the State Department just in the past two months have cited uh, amnesty in terms of human rights abuses in Iran, in, in Burma, in Belarus, and Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and, 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 so, and so many other places. Uh, and and uh, and so yeah, yeah. This is um, uh, uh, it's really they've really gone gone beyond the pale. And I um, uh, and I and again, it's going to hurt them politically. I mean, you know. Um, I've already yeah, on, on my uh, on social media I already hear hearing people say I was planning to give the max to the Democratic Party this uh, this uh, 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 this um, election, but I'm going to give it to Amnesty instead, you know, because uh, and and this is not again this is not smart uh, smart politics to to do this. So I'm I'm really uh, unclear what uh, what could possibly motivate them, except this is part of a broader anti-human rights agenda. Uh, indeed, one part, one thing that Amnesty, that Amnesty said in this report, and I think this is this may in fact be um, what um, up, upset uh, you know people uh, so much, is that uh, they said um, that uh, governments uh, which continue to supply Israel with arms and shield it from accountability in the United Nations are supporting a system of apartheid, undermining the international legal order and exacerbating the suffering. Of the Palestinian people, and so basically, it's calling on the United States to um, make uh, uh, military aid to uh, Israel conditional on their human rights record. Something Amnesty has called the United States to do, and quite a few other countries as well. And similar is stop blocking the United Nations from enforcing international law. But uh, the fact is, is that we have a majority of Democrats in the House along with the majority of Republicans who are on record saying U.S. aid to Israel must be unconditional. Uh, and they claim that U.S. Uh, aid to Israel advances peace and prosperity in the region and is actually somehow good for the Palestinians. And the and majority of Democrats have also gone on a record uh, saying that the United Nations shouldn't have anything to do with the, uh, um, the peace process. Um, you know, that, that, that despite it being formed for the very reason of settling international disputes, they're saying the UN should, should, should uh, bug off and that it should, uh, uh, that it should only be 
that the only way forward is through bilateral negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians, even though the Israeli prime ministers explicitly, in fact, just last week, explicitly reiterate his explicit opposition to any kind of Palestinian state whatsoever. And so this is the idea that that, that this, is, this is the idea that both the Biden administration and, and, and leaders of both parties are, are, are pushing for. No involvement of the United Nations, no threatened cutoff of aid, attack NGOs and others that are calling for support for international humanitarian law, basically as a means of, 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 of you know, maintaining uh, the, the occupation and policies, which are indeed, uh, as Amnesty has documented, a, a form of apartheid. So just two more things really briefly, if we could. Uh, the first is, you know, this feels like a real betrayal, the way the Biden administration has talked about the Amnesty International report, because I think that the Biden administration has talked a lot of game about uh, being pro-human rights. We're, we're the pro-human rights country. Um, and, you know, I, I was very hopeful with developments such as uh you know, Zaha Hassan, the attorney at the uh, Carnegie Endowment, you know, discussing things like taking a human rights centric approach to Israel-Palestine issues. And it seems like we were maybe possibly moving in that direction. There were signals that we were moving in this direction of, well, human rights is what matters, especially since we're seeing uh, abuses of human rights elsewhere. And yet, you know, just dismissing this report entirely seems like a great betrayal of the state of aims that uh, figures like Secretary of State Blinken and Biden himself have really uh, pushed for when it comes to human rights. Very much so. And, and, and the human rights uh, things have, have, have been in rhetoric only. I mean, to be honest, I, from the very beginning, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the Biden administration made very clear that we are continuing to uh, support uh, dictatorial regimes are not going to condition to aid to, to Egypt or others, even Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, despite their murder of a, of, a, of a Washington Post journalist and their responsibility for the deaths of tens of thousands of Yemenis. Again, the, the um, Biden administration is pushing uh, unconditional aid. The United States is the only country that, under Biden, uh, the United States is the only country in the world that formally recognizes um, Morocco's illegal annexation of Western Sahara. Even this Freedom House has pointed out how political rights in Western Sahara are literally the worst in the entire world, save for Syria. And so um, this is the, the uh, unfortunately, the, 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 and this is why I'm looking at, I see the attacks on amnesty is not just about the pro-Israel lobby, or it's not just about, you know, certain, you know, biases or, or sentimental attachments uh, some American uh, liberals have towards, towards the state of Israel. Um, but you know, this is part of a much broader agenda to, to, uh, to, to um, uh, marginalize uh, advocates for human rights. And if you can go after Amnesty, which is the most prominent uh, human rights organization and the most respected international uh, human rights organization in the world, if you can go after them and, and try to discredit them, uh, it opens the way for continuing this policy worldwide. So this goes well beyond Israel. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon here was, uh, you know, it, it, it's really disturbing to me to see uh, some of the sort of canned responses that we've seen to the Amnesty International report. Uh, people have said, oh, anti-Semitism. Uh, others have said, why are you singling out Israel, which is a really weird claim to me since Amnesty has reports on a number of other countries. And but the majority of countries, actually. Right. Yeah, highly, highly critical. It, it just so happens that this report focused on Israel. I don't think they're sing singling them out, though. Yeah. 
at, at the same time, I, I think we have a lot of uh, younger people that are more aware of these issues and, and have taken a different perspective, maybe closer to yours. Uh, do you think we're going to see changes at some point with uh, these issues related to Israel and Palestine? Only if there's pushback. I mean, if Biden and the Democrats can get away with just saying amnesty, um, and they, they can go after them for any other country. Uh, it, this, this, is, this is going to be a test case. And that is, this is it's critically important, I think, that, that people who are concerned about human rights, so for particularly younger people, um, to, to make, make clear to, to the Democrats, you can, you can support uh, human rights uh, and, and get our support, or you can attack human rights organizations and support uh, uh, governments that engage in war crimes, that engage in apartheid, which engage in political oppression, occupation, um, you know, uh, you know, whatever, and, and you're not gonna get our support. And uh, you know, just uh, uh, this is this is a the, the battle lines have been drawn, and uh, it's it's really time to 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 call these uh, anti-human rights uh, uh, politicians uh, to the carpet, even if they just ha happen to have a D by their name, because uh, uh, defending human rights uh, uh, I mean defending human rights is, is critical no matter what, what party is in power, and calling out supporters of uh, of human rights abusers is 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 imperative regardless of their uh, uh, party affiliation. In closing, was there anything in the Amnesty International report itself uh, that really stood out to you that you thought, you know, this is really important because I think my listeners need to read it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, the things that they outlined, of course, are things that have been documented before. Many of us have seen uh, our own eye, with our own eyes, you know, the demolition of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian homes. Um, and the refusal for, uh, uh, and to, to allow uh, uh, Palestinian communities to grow or even build additions on their houses while allowing these Israeli uh, colonists, uh, these illegal settlers on the occupied territory to, to take over uh, you know, this kind of land to dominate the water resources, the separate roads uh, on, the, on, the, on the West Bank for, for Jews and, and non-Jews, the fact that you had to have special permits to, to go to these places if you're, you're, uh, you're, 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 you're Palestinian. Um, and, and of course, you know, totally uh, you know, separate, even within Israel itself, um, you know, there are 50 different laws distinguishing um, the, the Arab population and the Jewish population, the way they've rewritten citizenship laws and, and, and the like uh, that, 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 that favors uh, one ethnic group against, against another. I mean, all, all these things are, are, um, are on the record and have been uh, written about and observed before, but the fact that they put the, them all together in a, in a systemic way in this 280 page report and saying, you know, if, if you look at all of these, that uh, this, is, this is a pattern uh, that uh, meets the legal definition of apartheid and that under international law, apartheid is a crime. And the fact that they've been, they're, 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 they're now, if you actually use that word for the first time, I mean, other groups, Human Rights Watch, Betzalem, other human rights groups have used it. It's the first time Amnesty has used it. Um, uh, it, it does does indicate uh, just how serious things have things things have gotten. That uh, well, it, especially since I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Bet Salem. I mean, this is an Israeli human rights organization that said this last year. Yes, yes, you know, uh, you know, very much so. Right? So it's it's worth reading. I mean, it'd be very hard to read that report and not dis and, and 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 still disagree uh, with its uh, conclusions. But again, uh, the the people who are attacking it clearly either have not. Uh, read the report, or they're lying about it. Um, and and you know, again, the fact that remember the U.S. arms uh, export um, industry, very very powerful. Billions of dollars are at stake here. 
because if we actually followed Amnesty's recommendation, not just with Israel, but with other recipients of U.S. Uh, you know, military aid, and uh, and said no, we, we should make this, this, the, 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 these these arms transfers conditional on human rights. You know that that would hurt the profit margins of these powerful uh, uh, corporations, and indeed, I think that's where a lot of the uh, opposition uh, to Amnesty and other human rights groups ultimately comes from. Well, I want to thank you again, Dr. Stephen Zunis, for coming on Parallax Use. I know my listeners can uh, find you on uh, both Twitter and Facebook. And also, uh, if you want, uh, could you plug your uh, book, Western Sahara, which is out in a new edition? Yes, uh, the, uh, the uh, second revised, expanded, updated uh, paperback edition of, of my book, Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Resolution, is available from Syracuse University Press, Amazon, elsewhere. You can find out, have more information about it, as well as see recent articles of mine on my website, which is uh, uh, www.stephenzunis.org. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-Z-U-N-E-S. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Steven Zunis, as well as my conversations with Mia Jankovics and Brandon Reynolds. In a big rush here, I actually have to work on a new project with Joseph Flatley, who you may remember from his past appearances on the program. We've actually began working together in a joint venture, the rebooting of his podcast, Filled State Update, which I'm now a co-host on. So check that out. If you Google Filled State Update, you'll find it pretty easily. And uh, of course, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. At the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group. Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and the Mere Reflection Project. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Use, well, then consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxuse. One more time, that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. 
bit no nostalgia for old allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.